When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the From the Vaults Rugby Podcast. My name is Phil McGowan and this World Rugby Museum podcast will explore some of the greatest players and moments in rugby's long history, featuring first-hand witnesses, commentary and interviews with the people who've shaped our sport. In the wake of the stunner in Shizuoka, we will be interviewing England coach Eddie Jones about exactly how he took the Brave Blossoms into the top 10 of world rugby and inflicted possibly the greatest sporting upset of all time when Japan beat the Springboks back in 2015. Eddie, first of all, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. Your first experience of a coach in Japan was back in 1995. What was it like? Uh, it was very interesting. Firstly, you get a cultural shock from just the country. And then the rugby culture is, is completely different from anything you experienced before. The first team I coached was Tokai University, uh, which was a struggling first division team in in one of the Kanto leagues in the university. And uh, I went there as as the head coach. And as soon as I got to training, I was informed by the director of rugby that uh, the captain had controlled the session and he'd tell me what to do. Um, so that was a bit of a shock. And after two weeks, I remember being at training and not doing much. And, you know, training would generally go for three hours, be completely non-specific to the game. Um, so the only way I could change that was by offering my resignation. So I offered my resignation and the director of rugby then allowed me to start running the sessions. And what was your average training schedule like? Uh, we had a squad of 90 players. So they normally trained together, as I said, 90 players for three hours. So I broke it up into three squads, made training much shorter. So I used to run basically from four o'clock to about nine o'clock, three different sessions for the A, B and C group. From there, you went on to coach Brumbies in Australia. Did you always expect to go back to Japan? Yeah, well, I always wanted to go back to Japan. During that time, the first year I coached Tokai, I was also forwards coach for Japan. Uh, a good mate of mine, Glenn Eller, was recruited in 96 by the head coach, who was a, a guy from Suntory who loved Australian rugby. And you've got to remember, in 95, Japan was beaten a record score by the All Blacks, something 145-3. So they wanted to change their rugby, so they employed Glenn, and then Glenn got in contact with me. We were old mates. 
So we coached Japan together for 96. We won, ended up winning the Asian Championship, which is the first time Japan had won it without foreign passport holders. Uh, so, so I always saw the potential of, of Japan as a rugby nation. So after I left in 96, I, I continued to go back and do part-time work for Suntory, which I, I still today have an association with. Um, and I always wanted to go back there and see if I could develop that potential, that inert potential that was there in Japanese rugby to its fruition. Japan in the 1960s and 1970s developed a very unique way of playing which was successful up to a point. Was that something that you were aware of and you wanted to bring back? 100%, yeah. What's what's old's new? Um, I remember playing in 19... Where was it? 1978, I think it was. I played for New South Wales schoolboys against Japan and Japan were tiny, but they scrummed this low from the ground uh, played quick channel one. Their lineouts were all short lineouts. We couldn't win the ball off them. You know, we ended up winning the game easily, but at set piece we could not win the ball off them. I could never work out why Japan went away from that because basically what happened was there was post ninety five there was an influx of New Zealand coaches and New Zealand players. And the Japanese adore the All Blacks. You know, I've never seen so many All Black jersey. Um, but then you see in Japan. And, and what happened was that the Japanese wanted to copy the New Zealand style of play. So they went away from all their strengths. Um, and basically what I decided to do when I went back to, to Japan was to concentrate on their strengths and then develop their game from there. And were you aware of those great players like Demi Sakata, Seiji Hirao that Japan had produced in the past? Uh, definitely aware of them, uh, met them. Uh, I can still remember Harau scoring a fantastic double round try in 95 against Ireland at the World Cup. And again, that was an example of, of what Japanese could do. Um, and those old great players were always around, always chatted to them when I went back there. What about the rugby community in Japan? Well, there's very strong rugby community in Japan. It's very small. And, and very uh, networked, but very strong. How did the opportunity to coach Japan arise and when did it come into view for you? Uh, well, it was a strange set of circumstances, actually. I came here to coach Saracens and signed a, a long-term contract anyway. During the course of the first six months, the ownership of Saracens changed and uh, I really didn't like the direction it was going, so we wanted to move and... Uh, we wanted our daughter to go to a place where we could, she could finish her high school. So we decided to go back to Japan and I, I took over the job as, as coach of Suntory, which hadn't been doing very well. Was successful there for two years and then took over the national team in 2012. And what were your immediate ambitions for the team and how far did you think you could take them? I remember the first press conference, I think, uh, talking about the fact we wanted to get in the top 10 in the world. And most of the people in the room looked at me as I was crazy. Um, but I I've, I've really felt there was that opportunity to get in the top 10. Um, and by the World Cup in 2015, we, we ended up, I think our highest ranking was ninth. I think you reached the top 10 in 2014, didn't you? And you had some big victories over European opposition in 13 and 14. Yeah, we got a lot of confidence from that. Uh, beating Wales once, beating Italy once. 
uh, going to Europe in 2013 it was the first time a Japanese team had ever won in Europe. So there were some good milestones along the way which helped build the confidence of the team. And how did you go about embedding that positive culture and cycle of improvement? Yeah, well, one of the things I did when I went back there, I, I got a friend of mine to do a, a research paper on samurai culture because I wanted to understand what was the real uh, pillars of Japanese society. And there was three things that came out, discipline, hard work and respect. So they became the three values of the team. And then we decided, right, we've got a small team. How can we be better than the opposition? So our set piece had to be innovative. So we went back to playing Channel One. We went back to playing quick lineouts, winning the ball in space. We had to be fitter than the opposition. So we ran the ball, tried to run the ball from everywhere. You know, the ball was a moving target. That was our theme. And then defence, we wanted to, to, to make sure we chopped tackle because, we were, again, we were small. Uh, so it was pretty simple. It was, it was pretty easy to come up with a game that I felt suited the Japanese. And once we started winning, the players started to believe in that style of play. So you focused on culture rather than looking at the individual skill sets of players? Uh, more about the culture and obviously the physical size of the players. You know, we had small players. Um, but I always believe that when you go to a country, there are certain values or certain behaviours that are indoctrinated in, in, in the players and in the society and, and you've got to stick to those. Um, and if you go away from those, it's hard to get a connection with the, with the players and the team. And what were your thoughts when you saw the draw for the Rugby World Cup? I'd coach South Africa, so I knew what a, a physical, committed team they are. And, yeah, they've always been a good World Cup team. But what I thought, if we can do well in that first game, then, then it gives us great confidence to go on in the tournament. And what traditionally Japanese had done in those, those games, because they hadn't won a game at the World Cup for 24 years, and every time they played against a Tier 1 country, they'd basically surrender. So they'd pick their B team and save their, their players for the, for the rest of the tournament. So we had the completely different approach. We were going to put in our absolutely best team, prioritise that game, give it everything we've got, and then we'll worry about the rest of the games after that. And so once we got the, the draw, we set about devising the game we thought we could beat the Springboks, and we practised that consistently for about two years. On the morning of the game, I remember going down to the, to the beach with Michael Leach, and we were having a, a chat about the game. I just remember saying to him, just, just give it everything you got today. You know, don't be afraid to, to, to lose and... Yeah, the fantastic decision he made on the field to go for the scrum, which could have in fact lost us the game, um, where we could have had a, a more than honourable draw, uh, was a testament to his belief in what the team could do. Save the try. Patakawa. When did you mentally accept that winning was a possibility? I thought we could get to 60-minute mark and be close. That's my, my most honest answer. Because I thought if we could get close to 60-minute mark, then the pressure on South Africa then would be enormous because they'd be looking at the scoreboard and thinking, it's not supposed to go like this. And so we'd have an opportunity to win the game. Who would ever have predicted this? The crowd will tell you again... 
delirious. Very good, the Japanese like that. Here we go, Matsushima! I didn't believe we were going to win the game until the ball was dead. Um, but there was, again, in the game we scored a try, I think, early, a more try early, and the score for Japan, the score a more try against South Africa is quite unique. So I thought, oh, we're going to, we're going to make a good fist of this game. We're not going to be embarrassed. Because you've got to remember their average result against a Tier 1 country at the World Cup before that was 85 nil. So to get in the game early, score a try, put some pressure on, showed that we're in the fight. And, and I remember thinking at one stage I almost felt satisfaction there, which was the worst thing to feel as a coach. Um, but then got myself back on, on the track of, of how we're going to win this game. To steal the game for Japan, one of the most famous victories in the history of sports, I'd go as far as saying, not just... In the game of rugby union. Our eyes have seen the glory. It's a rugby miracle. The players were absolutely ecstatic. And it basically took us two weeks to get them back on track. Uh, that was difficult. And we had a game against Scotland three days later. You know, and, then, and so our focus had to turn to that Scotland game. Now, you know, in retrospect, I'm disappointed the players couldn't enjoy that. Uh, result as much as they probably would have liked. Tell us a bit about the Scotland game. Three days, really fast turnaround. Yeah, again, so we we didn't have great depth in the squad. You know, we had 25 good players and then probably five or six players that weren't at the level to play. So a lot of our players had to back up. I remember getting, leaving Brighton and, you know, the whole town was so excited in Brighton about our victory. Long bus trip up to... We stayed in Warwick, um, had a couple of days preparation and, and we were right in the game, you know, I think we were ahead 15-10 after 50 minutes and the number eight, uh, Nucky, was playing superbly. He got injured and we lost a lot of momentum. They, they got one or two things right, gave them a lot of confidence. They got energy, we started drop off and, you know, we got beaten, I think, 40, 40 to 20. They were too good for us on the day, so we didn't have any excuses. And after that game, you'd won one, lost one, still very much in contention to qualify. What was the preparation like from there? Uh, well, I always remember about... We had a long break. We had probably 10-day preparation for the Samoan game. About three days into it, I had to pull the team in and, and give them a bit of a rev up because they were sitting in the team room watching NHK television or Channel 8 television, watching... Uh, television shows about our victory. You know, they were still basically playing the South African game. So we had a bit of a, a change of mindset and the players applied themselves really well. And our probably most complete victory at the World Cup was against Samoa. Tactically, we were brilliant. We closed them out. You know, a side that's athletically gifted against a side that's not athletically gifted. We controlled every aspect of the game and I thought the boys were superb. But then the next game against the USA was probably even more of an achievement for the team because our dream of making the quarterfinals had gone. Um, so we were playing just for pride and the USA had targeted that game as the game they wanted to win and we just stuck at it and did enough in that game to win it. And do you think that's a blueprint in the, in the Samoa and USA performances in terms of how Japan should approach the next World Cup? 
Yeah, well, it has Japan has to be tactically smart. You know, they're never going to be physically the best team in the world, so they've got to got to play fast, play to their strengths, be very skillful, and be tactically smart. Japan are the only team to have won three pool games and not qualified. How disappointing was that for you and the team? Uh, not really. We weren't good enough. Yeah, if we were good enough, we would have beaten Scotland, and and that's. If you want to make the quarterfinals, that's what you've got to do. So I didn't have any regrets or was disappointed. We gave it everything we got, and I think you know that team can look back with great pride on their performance. And what was the reaction like in Japan when you got back? Oh, it was crazy. It was crazy. Um, everywhere you went, there was just crowds of people. I can remember meeting uh, Michael Leach for a coffee in Shinjuku, um, and we came out of star- a Starbucks there. And one person saw us and took a photo and then it ended up, it took us 15 minutes to get out of the shop. Michael Leach had a cafe out at Fuchu. He was getting people lying up three or four hours before his cafe had opened to get in. You know, it just became, became rugby was the, the fashionable thing. You know, Goro Maru became the most consistent performer on, on commercials over there. Japan are about to host the Rugby World Cup for the first time. How significant an opportunity for rugby in Japan is that? Oh, I think it's, it's going to be the catalyst for the game to kick on and be a, a really consistently strong sport there. Because the, the big thing for, for Japan to flourish as a, as a rugby nation is that at those younger age levels, kids are motivated to play rugby. You know, a lot of the mothers, particularly in Japan, don't like rugby because it's it's a physical contact sport and generally the ground conditions aren't very good to play on. Um, so you have to present a reason as to why kids should play rugby and having a, a successful World Cup and a successful national team gives kids a, a dream. You know, they can play international sport at the highest level, doesn't matter what size you are. So that's really important for the future of Japanese rugby. All right, there's a lot of rugby fans from all over the world about to visit Japan. What kind of welcome should they expect? Oh, it'd be fantastic. Yeah, Japanese are, are very welcoming people. Um, they'll be delighted to have such a big tournament. Um, and it's, and it's, it will be unique because it's not, a, it's not a rugby country. Thanks for listening to From the Vaults. If you're not already, please follow us on at W Rugby Museum at Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Sign up to our blog, also called From the Vaults on WordPress. And more importantly, come down and visit the World Rugby Museum here at Swickenham Stadium. Please subscribe to From the Vaults for regular content like this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.